millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, of course, we don't think of Makkah, we don't visualize Makkah anymore as the Kaaba. We visualize it as this absolute monstrosity that uh, towers above the, the Kaaba itself. And as I say, I, I led the structuring of the financing of that. And in some senses, I guess I was blinded by, and we all were blinded by, the innovation of a Western investment bank, being Deutsche Bank, being invited for the first time into the holy city to finance real estate. And I didn't realize that I was very naively participating in the wholesale destruction of my own heritage. Islamic finance is today a multi-billion pound industry. The growing Islamic consciousness of Muslims East and West has coincided with a skepticism towards the interest-based capitalist banking system. The financial crisis of 2008 compounded the belief of many Muslims that the global financial system is a gambler's paradise a house of cards built on foundations that contradict the certainties that underpin an Islamic economy. For some, Islamic finance is a solution to these ethical dilemmas. Our guest this week is an insider turned sceptic. Haris Irfan takes on the essential purpose and complexities of Islamic finance and questions whether it has fulfilled its lofty Islamic objectives. Haris is the author of Heaven's Bankers Inside the Hidden World of Islamic Finance, a detailed and insightful book exploring the Islamic finance industry's internal machinations and contentions. He was the co-founder of Deutsche Bank's world-leading Islamic finance team, served as global head of Islamic finance at Barclays, and is widely recognised as one of the world's leading authorities in the industry. In this discussion with my co-host Riaz Hassan, he talks candidly about how much Islamic finance depends on a capitalist river-based architecture. He recalls his part in acquiring funding 
for the Mucker Clock Towers project, a project he now regrets. This is a fascinating look at the players and motives of an industry. Harris also offers his views on Bitcoin as a more Islamic alternative above the gold standard, traditionally accepted as a stable Sharia-based currency. Haris Arfan is an investment banker with a degree in physics from the University of Oxford and over two decades of experience in Islamic finance in London and the Middle East. Haris, I know that you are well steeped in Islamic finance. In fact, you've been uh, around since the very genesis of modern Islamic finance in the late 90s. So, um, But I wanted to start this um, podcast really before we get into the weeds of your insights into Islamic finance. I want you to cover something that is kind of ubiquitous to us all, whether we're Muslims, non-Muslims, or any other persuasion, which is the issue of money, um, money and debt. Because I find although that we use money and we are accustomed to money, very often we forget what the purpose of money is and what the purpose of debt is just start off by enlightening us on how money should be viewed. So this is an important question, and I think it's a question that the Islamic finance and Islamic banking industry has very specifically failed to adequately address. And hence why I have formed certain views about the Islamic finance and banking industry. So the first question we should be asking, you're quite right, is what is money? And it's not a question that should be asked only of orthodox economists. I think it should be asked of heterodox economists. It should be asked of anthropologists, of philosophers, of theologians, and possibly even physicists. And really the ideal nature of money is that it is a medium of exchange. It is a store of value and it's a unit of account. Unfortunately, in the modern world, it's become a commodity to be traded. So we trade cash flows with each other in the form of bonds, for example, and other intangibles. We treat money as something to make money out of. We charge interest on loans. And that is riba. Riba is any excess or surplus. It's money out of money. Our entire banking system is based on money creation, which is something I think we can talk about later. So if we ask the question, what is money? We should say it has no real value by itself. It's used to exchange value of real goods and services, what we call the real economy. And that's, I think, the, the right starting point. A lot of people have talked about the issue of whether money came before debt and whether debt came before money. So I know there's a, a number of economists out there from uh, you know, David Graeber and others of that ilk who talk about debt being the actual fuel for driving money and the creation of money and why we use money. Um, and also, I wanted to just kind of cover why, even in earliest times, money was viewed as an instrument to beget more money, as you've just said, right? So um, there's instances in the Bible, in the Torah, about uh, how money was used, how money lenders used to uh, perhaps usurp money and usurp the actual wealth of other people uh, using money as a tool. Um, so could you kind of expand upon some of the thinking that you have behind this and how riba came into being and how it was perceived even in biblical times and then following on into islamic times as well yeah so you've used the example of david graeber uh, which i think is a, a very good example he's of course an anthropologist first and foremost and uh, many economists will disagree with him economists mostly will say money originates as barter 
uh, and he will say that money originates, or he would say, he's passed away now, that money originated as debt. So his theory is that before money, there's debt, and 5,000 years ago, agrarian societies have created elaborate systems to buy and sell on credit because no coinage has been invented. So these IOUs circulate in a community uh, and are a form of money. And it, uh, you know, we can then start to extend that. We say that early civilizations held surplus commodities in temples, which were effectively industrial concerns. So commodities are lent to merchants. And because the priests of these temples can't audit profit and loss uh, attributable to each merchant, they make it easy for themselves by charging the merchants interest on the amount that's lent out and interest is lent at a uh, sorry these commodities are lent at a fixed rate of return and merchants continue to lend to each other and interest proliferates in society so collateral of course gets demanded and collateral is usually in the form of grain and livestock for example but if that's insufficient to repay then one's own family one's children become debt peons, bonded labor or slaves. And so you have the situation where slaves are not just those who are conquered by neighboring civilizations and neighboring countries, but they could be anyone and debt leads to slavery. So of course, violent coercion is, is the primary enforcement mechanism. And that ensures that debt is passed down through the generations, which is why, for example, we, we can read in the Bible, the law of Jubilee, the governor of Judea in the fifth century BC, he institutes the law of Jubilee, which is that the slate is wiped clean every seventh or Sabbath year and debt peons are returned to their families. So we see that Judaism, Christianity and Islam outlawed interest for the sake of fairness and equality and social justice. But of course, today we see a sort of creeping normalization of interest and usury and riba. Uh, the church um, allowed the uh, financiers in the Middle Ages to circumvent the law against interest being charged on a loan by allowing a, uh, three contracts to be executed between counterparties, what they call contractum trinius, so that it would give the effect of a loan with interest. And today in the Islamic finance industry, we see a similar event taking place which is uh, the creation of this synthetic uh, contractual structure called organized tawarruk, sometimes it's referred to as commodity murabaha, which is essentially also a synthetic proxy for a loan with interest. And it is offered by Islamic banks. I can't remember the stats. It might be something like 95% uh, of all of the uh, Islamic banks activities are conducted through the, the tawarruk or commodity murabaha. Um, which, as I say, is, is essentially a very synthetic transaction. That is, of course, because they operate within a, a system, <clears throat> a monetary system, which requires them to create money from the act of credit creation. And again, that's a fairly complex topic that hopefully will unfold. You've come on to a, a, an area of interest now, which is a bit more contemporaneous in terms of the financialization of society as such that we see today or the over financialization of society um firstly how has that been allowed to happen not just from a an islamic financial point of view but generally across the board in society um, and we see the role of private banks and we see the role of creation of money because 
When we're young, we just think about money in terms of a household budget. We think money is finite. We get money from somewhere and then we spend the money. But there's a totally different philosophy to this with, with, with the merchant banks and with private banks. Um, so could you expand upon this role of why it's not just the institutions or the governments that create the money or the Federal Reserve, but it's actually these private institutions that have a role in creating some of this money that keeps going around and creating unnecessary pressures like inflation and everything else. Well, it's interesting you mentioned when you're young, and I made that mistake when I was young as well, because I assumed that money and finance and economics was a, an unworthy subject and something that I, I wasn't interested in and wasn't worth my time. And I made a huge mistake in believing that. I, I studied physics at university, um, and, and that is what I thought was important to me. Um, I used to run a university Islamic society, and we once invited an Islamic bank to talk to us about this subject. And I remember being very unimpressed, although they wore sharp suits and spoke very fancy jargon. I didn't understand any of it. And they didn't connect with us. And that was a huge mistake because uh, they made me believe that finance and economics were irrelevant to my life. And actually, it's potentially the most important subject that any of us, whatever discipline or field we're in, should, should understand. Because if we can solve the monetary system and the financial system, we can solve everything. Um, and I think that they weren't able to explain the subject very well simply because they didn't understand it very well. And they missed a perfect opportunity to explain to a group of you know, bright young people who wanted to do interesting and potentially influential things with their lives, you know, what was the importance of a just halal economic system. So now we come on to, you know, what is the world like today? What is the financial and monetary system like today? Well, my contention is that the financial system is broken. Um, I believe that empirical and statistical analysis of economic history has been wiped from the university curriculum. And therefore, economic reality is not really part of the syllabus that is taught in universities today. I think that there's a lobbying and a selective, uh, there's, there's, there's a lobbying and there's a funding by large corporations uh, and MBA uh, of MBA schools and economics faculties, that means that there is a selective amnesia, uh, which has resulted in huge tracts of economic history being ignored. And what I think is happening is people are being fed a dogma, uh, a dogma by priests who speak Latin, and they speak in a language which obfuscates and doesn't help us to understand the reality of what's going on. So we, the lay people, you know, watch the news every day. Um, people talk about GDP and they talk about monetary policy and money supply. Uh, and we don't really understand what they're saying. And we assume that the priests who speak Latin must know what they're doing. They have a direct line to God. Uh, but actually, we don't need that. You know, we, we, don't have any, we don't need any intermediaries. We can learn this subject for ourselves. It's actually not very difficult. Economics, as it's... Uh, espoused today by modern economists is more of a religion than a science. It's a dogma. It's not based on empirical fact. Its models are false. Its models are demonstrably have failed. Uh, we can see examples of that. 2007, 2008 financial crisis. There were bailouts in the trillions of dollars. Boom and bust are a recurrent cyclical event. We often contend, I mean, society contends that the fault must lie with the managers of the monetary system and the financial system. 
But my contention, it's the system itself, which is at fault. We can change the managers as much as we like. The end result, we're still going to get to the same point because our incentives are inherently flawed. Um, I think that government and central bank policy has been consistently ineffective. Uh, the financial crisis of 2007-2008 is a perfect example of that. Uh, also, the late 1980s in the United Kingdom, uh, higher interest rates did not curb the money supply and did not reduce inflation, as the economists told us it would. So as I say, the logical conclusion is the fault lies with the system. And what we see is a dogma that preaches financialization of the economy. GDP, gross, gross domestic product, is the primary measure of human progress and therefore has led to an unbridled pursuit of profit. And governments and corporations make decisions that yield short-term benefit, but a long-term loss. What is happening is our exchange value increases, that's GDP, but our experiential value decreases. Uh, and uh, the example that's used by a Greek economist called Yanis Varoufakis uh, is the example of a forest fire. So when a forest fire takes place, GDP goes up, exchange value goes up because you're paying for fuel and fireman's wages for equipment and transport to get to the fire, but you're reducing experiential value. There's no forest anymore and you've reduced environmental value. So it's a bit strange, you know, that neoclassical economics has established a framework for, for measuring our progress and for valuation methodologies such as what they call discounted cash flow, which prioritizes short-term gains over long-term sustainability. And in extremists, for example, it would lead to desertification of a land rather than long-term sustainable farming. So it's not really based in reality. It constructs false models, and hence why I use the term priests speaking Latin, because it's almost as if they deliberately don't want us to understand what's going on. Uh, and, I, and I'll often bring this subject back to the subject of of money itself, of money supply. Fiat money is money that is decreed to be so by the government. So dollars, pounds, euro, yen are all types of fiat money. And central banks have control of the supply of fiat money. They can manipulate that supply. They can print more of it. It's a colloquial term. They don't literally print more of it. There's methods by which they do that. And we can talk about that later. And that helps them to deal with economic crises, these boom bust cycles. It also allows banks to operate what's called a fractional reserve system, which means that they can create mon new money through the act of lending. So every pound that you deposit in the bank, they're allowed to uh, lend more than one pound, typically about 10 pounds. So they've created nine new pounds whenever you deposit money. Now, that seems to me against all common sense, and yet we accept that that's the way the monetary and financial system works. And that has allowed a culture of what I call high time preference. This is the borrow, spend, consume model. And there's a professor called Professor Seyfried Dinamus who talks about hard money versus uh, unsound money, sound money versus unsound money. And he describes the modern fiat business model as follows. Number one, you find anything to sell even at a loss, doesn't matter. Number two, you borrow from a central bank at 2%, a very low interest rate. Number three, you give a credit card to consumers at 20%, a very high interest rate. 
Number four, people are now in debt for stupid things that they don't need, but it's okay because money loses value anyway, so you may as well spend it. And number five, as a result, guess what happens? GDP number goes up and apparently human society has progressed. But meanwhile, we've destroyed the planet and put toxic waste into our rivers and filled our landfill and we keep changing our cars every two years and our mobile phones every one year and we deplete the earth of you know natural minerals and so on and so on. So this is very strange to me. This false incentive that has been created by the borrow, spend, consume model, which is caused by fiat money, has led to a world defined by GDP. It measures the exchange value of goods, not experiential value of our lives. It doesn't measure literacy and mental health and divorce and suicide rates and environmental pollution. And so we live in a joyless place, this market society. And what I find as a result is that the society's innovation and inventiveness is actually decreasing because our time preference is going up. We prefer to spend money and replace things more frequently because money devalues fast. We throw money into socially useless ventures. We build in obsolescence into our products. We don't mend things, we throw them away and we buy new things. The resilience and sustainability of society is decreasing. Look at mental health problems today. Look at the youth, look at Gen Z and millennials. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, there seem to be a lot more societal problems, particularly mental health issues today than there were when I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I think we're desertifying our planet and we're destroying society in the process. So I'm very, very concerned that we have this almost religious dogma that is being preached to us that has given us high time preference. Uh, but I think that's uh, fundamentally very bad for society. Uh, it's interesting that you should say that modern syllabuses and what's being taught to our young people doesn't actually teach us the, uh, the true essence of, of, of a growth minded society. Um, some may find it a bit conspiratorial or however, but you know, it's something I think perhaps we need to think about in a bit more detail. But also fractional reserve banking was quite interesting because I always viewed fractional reserve banking as the fact that banks have to keep a certain amount of deposit in, in, in their coffers, if, if you like. So every pound they lend, they have to keep it. I never thought of it in terms of the way that you've just kind of expressed it, which is that they can create that money at the touch of a keystroke. Right, which is essentially what's happening. Uh, and that's something, you know, it kind of throws you out of kilter almost, if you like. And it's something that I think it took me a long time to kind of appreciate as to how that actually works. How could an institution, which is not even a government, just create money out of yeah. thin air on the, on the actions of a keystroke? Yeah. But what I want to do is try and come on to contemporary Islamic finance, if you like. And I know you're well steeped in the industry and you've been in the, in the industry since perhaps the modern industry began. Uh, I want to take our listeners back to the time where this was first muted in terms of contemporary Islamic finance. And also what happened during the time that riba was outlawed at the time of Rasulullah and this time, because Muslim societies operated, they bought and they dealt and they traded and they did various things. Where was the element, was there an element of, is, of interest throughout those ages? And then why is it only now that we are learning to appreciate that, well, actually modern finance doesn't deal with our needs? 
And it's only really within the 80s, maybe the 90s, that we started really seriously looking at alternative Islamic finance or riba-free finance, if you like. So could you take us on that, that journey into how this all developed? It's very interesting. Now, there's a book by a gentleman called Benedict Curler, and I think it's called something like Islam and the Birth of Capitalism, something along those lines, early Islam and the Birth of Capitalism. He contends that Islam is responsible for the development of early capitalism. Uh, the kind of thing that we saw that seeped into southern Europe and a lot of Europe believes that you know modern capitalism originated in places like Venice for example um, but his contention is actually many of the methods uh, and even the financial instruments that were ultimately used in Europe originated in Arabia uh, and I, I think there's a lot of um, a truth in that when we look at the life of the Prophet his life as a merchant the kinds of um, business uh, that he did as a mudarib, as a manager of other people's money, uh, the, the methods by which he shared profits, the methods by which he negotiated with others, the methods by which he negotiated treaties, how he prevented preying on the weak and the vulnerable. We'll find many examples of hadith that have incredible wisdom in them. And, you know, today we have modern institutions and organizations uh, which deal with monopolies and mergers, for example, and consumer protection rights. And in many senses, we can trace back the origins of many modern innovations that protect the consumer or otherwise create, for example, contractual structures that are good for society. Things like trusts, for example, trust law originates in Islamic law, believe it or not, the waqf, the endowment. Uh, the very first one in Europe was, or one of the very first, sorry, was Merton College, Oxford, which is one of the first colleges in Oxford University in 1264. Its, its statutes of endowment are almost a word-for-word -word translation of an equivalent or equivalent al-qaf endowments in Jerusalem and Baghdad and elsewhere at the time. And the reason for that is because the uh what's his name walter walter de merton uh sorry yes i think that's his name he was the head of the knights templar and would have been in jerusalem at the time that these madrasas were set up so he obviously brought that knowledge back with him and set up a college uh, at, at, at oxford so we see many of these innovations seeping into europe that form the basis for what has now become modern capitalism but it's a sort of warped turbocharged uh, distorted version of the caring merchant capitalism that it was always intended to be. And the principles set out in Quran and Sunnah, and Quran, of course, is very clear on, on trade being halal and riba being haram. And there are very clear pointers on this. And then the hadith is a collection of the wisdom uh, of the actions of the Prophet uh, For example, the establishment of free markets. Uh, people asked him whether he would fix the prices of certain commodities because prices were rising too fast. And he said, actually, Allah is the one who controls prices. Uh, and he, he knew that if he set prices, if they're fixed by man, that would lead to an injustice. And so we have the concept of free markets inherent in our faith, at the same time as protecting the weak and the vulnerable. So for example, not allowing the traders to go beyond the city walls to meet the caravans and trade before the other merchants therefore manipulating prices.
you know, th there's huge wisdom in that. And then we see the codification of these principles by the scholars who came in the centuries after the death of the Prophet And the codification has led to this body of jurisprudence called Fiqh al-Mu'amalat, which deals with our interactions with each other and with our business counterparties. And in Islam, there's no concept of, you know, it's not personal, it's only business. There's no such concept as that. Everything we do in business is personal. Our morality is at stake every time we do business with somebody else. We can't justify bad behavior just because it was business. That's part of our inherent moral character. So these are the principles upon which the Islamic finance industry started, the modern Islamic finance industry, uh, which I would say started around 1963, which was the Mithramar experiment. So this is a town about 80 miles from, uh, from Cairo. And in 1963, a, a famous economist set up a, an experiment. It was a sort of a social bank, which took in deposits from local people and invested those deposits in local industry. And of course, the return from those businesses would manifest in a return to the depositors. So it was a true form of risk sharing and later on became a social bank. Then what happened in, by about 1975, there was the establishment of the first large Islamic bank, commercial bank called Dubai Islamic Bank, and at the same time, the Islamic Development Bank, which was a multilateral. And now at last, you see the commercialization of this experiment. So for the first, I'd say 10, 20, maybe even 30 years, Islamic finance was somewhat experimental and started to become commercial, but remained parochial, unsophisticated, expensive, and it took probably up to about the mid 90s, perhaps the late 90s, when HSBC came on the scene uh, to to really grow it into a global industry. And actually, I was invited to a little evening soiree in the city, city of London in 1996 by someone called Iqbal Khan, who had invited, who was then the head of, had just started a, an Islamic division at HSBC, which was to be called HSBC Amana. And he invited a, a very famous scholar called Sheikh Nidham Yakubi. And during that evening, I learned what it was to, um, to create a Sharia compliant financial system, how these products might work, what benefit there was to society if we had products like this, and that evening set me on a path to discovering more about Islamic finance. So when I eventually transitioned from my career in conventional investment banking, I moved to Dubai in 2001 uh, with Deutsche Bank. And a lot of clients came to us and said, well, it's wonderful you're here, Deutsche Bank. I was the first banker on the ground in Dubai. It's wonderful you're here, but can you do these deals on a Sharia compliant basis? And being investment bankers, we kind of blagged our way and said, yes, sure, we can. But of course, we've never done this stuff before. So we learned at the feet of the scholars. And probably the most famous of those was Sheikh Hussein Hamid Hassan, who was, in many senses, the grandfather of the, of the modern Islamic finance industry. And we, we created some incredible techniques that had never been done before and created some products that had never been thought of before and pushed some real innovation into the market. And for a couple of years, we had 100% market share because nobody had ever seen anything like this before. Uh, and it was a very profitable time. 
Uh, but of course, all good things come to an end. And even though we had managed to invent an entire segment of this new Islamic finance market, the products that we had and the techniques that we had invented came to be abused by the industry, including by our own bank. Uh, and as a result, um, you know, things started falling apart. And I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that a little bit if you think it's interesting. I think, Harris, you've, you've given us a good synopsis on where the industry was and, and how it's developed uh, till the present times. One thing that often intrigues me is, uh, especially about banks that are claimed to be Islamic, is the fact of um, how are they capitalized? You know, where does their money come from in order to lend to us? Right. So um, is it our deposits that go into for example, HSBC Amana that they then kind of pool and then lend out as, uh, as parcels or as mortgages to other people? Is it the fact that they create their money from somewhere else or are they just imitating the way uh, Western banks normally operate, which is to create money from a keystroke? That being one thing. What I, the other thing I wanted to kind of explain to our audience is um, an Islamic bank, the face that we see of an Islamic bank is just the retail element, which is how we get our Islamic mortgages or how we get our Islamic investment products. But there's a whole other arm of Islamic banking, which is about financing big deals or uh, corporate finance, if you would. So could you just explain how that operates within a contemporary Islamic bank? At one time, I thought it was possible to have an Islamic banking and finance system that upheld Maqasid al-Sharia and was a force for good. I thought it was possible to have technically excellent Muslims, ideologically aligned, doing extraordinary things and still being highly profitable. And then, as I said, at Deutsche Bank, we created this new market. We developed all these techniques and then we invented a technique which was called the double wad total return swap, which was a black box to replicate the returns of any financial instrument in a Sharia compliant manner. And it became our Manhattan Project. You know, the Manhattan Project was the creation of the atomic bomb before Hitler. The Allied scientists gathered in Los Alamos and they split the atom and the energy they released had to be used wisely. And ultimately, an aggressive sales culture at these, convention, at these investment banks destroyed the market for these products. And at that point, the veil was lifted for me and I started to understand a little bit more deeply what was going on here. So how are Islamic banks capitalized? Let's come back to that question. Well, you're quite right. Our deposits work in the same way as the deposits in a conventional bank. Now, you may say, well, hang on. So if I put a pound into such and such Islamic bank and they can lend out nine pounds of new money against that pound, they've created nine new pounds? Yes, they have, because they operate within the same regulatory and legislative system that the conventional banks operate. They don't have any special passes there uh, and they are required to do so by the regulations. So they engage in money creation just like any other conventional bank. And it's at that point that you think, well, all this time that I've spent trying to create these very fancy contractual structures, which themselves are based on Sharia and are Sharia compliant, it doesn't really matter how Sharia compliant the veneer is if the framework underneath it is still the traditional fractional reserve banking system because that is money creation it's money out of money which is the definition of riba and therefore that must be haram 
So once you realize that point, you have to also realize that there's something fundamentally not right about Islamic banking or the Islamic finance industry in a wider sense operating on the same framework. And maybe we need to change that framework. You then ask the question about retail versus corporate investment banking. So as retail customers, we would walk into our high street bank and we open checking accounts and savings accounts and we take a mortgage and you know perhaps there are other products that these banks offer us. Of course, there's a, a separation between retail banks and large wholesale investment and commercial banks. And the work that I did with Deutsche and Barclays and others was primarily investment banking and also asset management. And these obviously, this type of banking deals with large corporations and government institutions and so on. So for example, we would typically help a government to raise, say, a billion dollars in a type of Islamic bond called a sukuk. Uh, or we would help a company acquire another company using a form of what's called leverage finance. So they would take out a loan which had been cleverly structured in some way to give the effect that it was fully Sharia compliant. But of course, the whole time it's based on a financial institution that engages in money creation through the act of lending. So no matter how hard we try within the existing system to create fancy contractual structures that are Sharia compliant themselves, we may be trying to meet the letter of the law, the letter of Sharia, but we're not meeting the spirit of Sharia. And in fact, this led to a, a, this one example of a, a, a debate within the industry was when we created this black box technology that allowed us to replicate the returns of any financial instrument in a supposedly Sharia compliant format. This was a failure to adhere to the spirit of the law and it led to a very public spat between Sheikh Hossein Hamid Hassan, who was of course the chief architect of, of Deutsche Bank's Islamic finance uh, division, and Sheikh Yusuf de Lorenzo, who called it the doomsday fatwa. Uh, and there are, as I say, other parallels with historical attempts to circumvent religious law, such as the contractum trinius and the tawarruk that I mentioned earlier. I think what you're essentially trying to say also is that somehow the means are kind of contaminating the ends that we're seeking from, the, from this whole project here, um, which is uh, an interesting thought to kind of uh, assess, actually, because we as people on the street just see the end product, right? We, we see the end product in terms of, you know, us trying to abide by our river free transactions and so forth. Um, but I just want to go back to your investment banking days because you mentioned a very interesting incident or an interesting project that you're working on, which is the Makkah Towers, which I presume everybody who's been on Umrah and on Hajj has seen uh, the gigantic uh, clock tower that sits aside the Haram, um, you know, which most people think is, is a gross travesty against the, the whole um, you know, sanctity of the Haram, if you like. Um, but you were actually involved in the financing of that project, right? So what are your thoughts now looking back on the whole experience of why you did that in the first place and what it has led to and what kind of impacts that it's had on our ummah moving forward? It's a very interesting point. In 2002, I led the structuring uh, which is a form of financial engineering, of the financing of Safa Tower, which is one of the seven towers that you'll see. Often when I, when I do lectures about this subject, I'll show a picture of Makkah. And in this picture, you'll see this enormous clock tower and these surrounding towers. 
And then right in the center of the picture is this tiny little black dot. And that tiny little black dot is the Kaaba. So of course we don't think of Makkah, we don't visualize Makkah anymore as the Kaaba. We visualize it as this absolute monstrosity that uh, towers above the, the Kaaba itself. And as I say, I, I led the structuring of the financing of that. And in some senses, I guess I was blinded by, and we all were blinded by the innovation of a Western investment bank being Deutsche Bank, being invited for the first time into the holy city to finance real estate. And I didn't realize that I was very naively participating in the wholesale destruction of my own heritage, the detonation of historic sites in surrounding mountains into billions of pebbles. And again, the team that I was working in observed the letter of the law by designing contractual structures that met the technicalities of Fekul Ma'amalat, but we failed to observe the spirit. And I think the reason for that is because fiat money encourages us to engage in projects that may have questionable, questionable long-term social values. It means that those of us who are privileged, like bankers, to sit close to the tap of money, the money spigot, uh, i.e. the central bank, where money is created, it makes those people much richer in the short term, but at the expense of social values, of culture, of history, and so on. Um, so it gives us this high time preference by borrowing, spending, and consuming as fast as possible. And I often use that example of Abraj al-Bayt, the, the towers, as an example of, um, you know, is this really progress and economic success? It's actually destroyed history. And, and, that, and the fault, again, lies with the monetary system, I believe. Just coming back to um, the ordinary person on the street um, and how we view Islamic banking as such, for us, Actually, however, the misgivings of the industry are that you've kind of alluded to uh, uh, at the moment, for us, it offers a way out. It offers a river-free way of buying a house. It offers us some way of not letting our money be devalued just by, you know, keeping it under the mattress. Um, so how should the ordinary person view this? And then how are we, uh, you know, how do we make sense of this? Because Although there are misgivings with the industry, and we've already painted that, you know, there are certain fundamental truths in terms of why it's akin to normal Western banking. But for us as transactories uh, onto that system, we are just bounded by the fact that we are doing a transaction that, in our view, hopefully is riba free. And then I think following on from that question is. In your view, how should the industry then change? You know, what, what is it? What are the changes that we are looking for from this industry, or can it change? You know, um, does it matter that the fact, you know, wherever they source their money from, does it matter to us in terms of us getting that halal mortgage for us ourselves? Yeah, well, that's a really challenging question, and um, I'm going to do my best. But you know, <laughs> you know, we we could we could talk about this for days. Um, so, because the other thing um, I've noticed also is that there's only 2% of market penetration for halal mortgages, especially in the UK. And that's extremely low. I thought that was going to be a lot higher. So, you know, where what are we doing? Where are we going? So on this subject, I'm afraid I'm going to demonstrate some cognitive dissonance at the risk of being called a hypocrite. Um, on the one hand, I know that the framework that underpins Islamic banking is inherently non-Islamic because it involves creation of money out of money. And yet, on the other hand, I encourage people to use the Islamic finance industry because it's all we've got for the time being. 
Uh, and also there are a lot of Muslims employed in that industry. And perhaps the more Muslims who are aligned in a particular way there are in that industry and can influ influence it, perhaps the, the greater the chance for real reform. So I do often say to people, if you want to get a mortgage or a savings account or whatever, I tend to uh, champion the Islamic finance industry and the Islamic banking industry. I say, look, in some ways, in some senses, it's better the devil you know. Yes, the framework is not halal. But I suppose in a similar way, if you live in a country where uh, an animal is required to be stunned before being slaughtered, uh, and a halal certification in that country allows you to eat the meat as being halal, even though it was stunned because the law demands it, then to some degree, scholars have said, well, I guess that's acceptable then, because there's nothing you can do about that. And it's the best of a bad situation. And I, I guess a similar sort of logic can be applied to Islamic banks. I have an Islamic bank account. My family does. I use their products. I have to say that I'm not very happy in many ways, and I'm happy to discuss that in more detail. But, uh, you know, that that is what I do. And I try to encourage Muslims also. And I completely understand. I have a good friend in the industry who is uh, very uh, vocal and against Islamic banks because he sees it as a form of hypocrisy. And I greatly respect him for that position. Uh, and he refuses to touch them. Uh, but I have a, a slightly different view on that. I would like to see it reformed, and I would like to see Muslims take charge of that. You mentioned the 2% penetration rate. That, that's the UK industry is a total disaster. So only 2% of British Muslim households uh, are serviced by the UK Islamic banks, and one in particular, the largest British Islamic bank. And I believe the reason for that, and by the way, the British Islamic banks have made a 200 million pound loss over 15 years, despite a near monopoly position and very favorable market conditions. So why is that? Well, the first reason that I point to is that all five CEOs of the British Islamic banks are non-Muslim conventional bankers. They don't buy Sharia compliant products for their own portfolios. They don't, they hire people in their own mold. Uh, there is, frankly, very little cultural affinity and alignment with the people that they serve. There's no detailed technical understanding of fiqh ma'amalat. There are no deep existing networks within the Islamic industry or the Islamic community. So it's no wonder to me that they don't understand the customer base and they have a 2% penetration rate and huge losses over 15 years. So how do we reform this? Well, there's two ways we can reform this. Either we can, we can convince shareholders that they should be appointing management who represent the people they serve. And there's plenty of those with very strong technical ability, by the way. It's not that these people don't exist. I, I think it would be pretty straightforward for me to set up such a team, but it's not gonna happen because the shareholders are typically uh, Gulf, ultra high net worths and institutional investors who like having a certain type of leader in place. And I don't want to say too much more than that, because then I get accused of all sorts of things. But there's this idea of what a leader should be. And unfortunately, it's not a leader who looks like me or you, no matter what our technical background. So I think that that's a, a, a key reason why there's a problem, because there is a, a sort of um, perverse um, 
you know, incentive within the industry to appoint these leaders who, who don't actually represent their, uh, their customers. So the, the, the ownership and management of Islamic banks should be in the hands of those who care about Maqasid al-Sharia. That's the first thing. However, there's an alternative, more radical solution. If all that's going to happen is that we end up having managers of those businesses who are still operating within this fractional reserve banking system and are therefore not really moving the needle on what the industry should be doing and should be lobbying for, I think there's a more radical solution. And I think that radical solution starts with non-bank financial intermediaries. And I talk regularly to what I call Islamic fintechs, financial technology firms, who are typically small early stage companies who are, who are technology focused, who are providing a financial service through technology. And sometimes many of us will use you know, apps on our mobile phone, like Revolut and Monzo, for example, to provide mobile banking services. And it's basically an Islamic version of that. That's that's one solution, but there's an even more radical solution, which is to tear up the rule book. Regarding cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular, and your view on the fact that Bitcoin should be looked at as an alternative currency standard. Now, I think that there's a number of things to unpick here. Firstly, there's the issue of the legitimacy of something like Bitcoin in an Islamic sense, if you like. There, is, there have been various fatwas and there have been various opinions on social media, on more credible sites, on big name scholars, small name scholars regarding this issue uh, because of the publicity that's received since 2000 and maybe 17, 18. Um, and then there's the issue about why do we need a new currency standard? Whereas always the debate has been around gold or a bimetallic standard versus fiat currencies. And there are strong opinions uh, regarding the gold and bimetallic standards. And some Muslim scholars do have opinions regarding the fiat standard as well. But here you seem to have introduced a third dimension into the mix, which is um, not common, let's say, uh, amongst the majority of scholars or opinion makers on this front. So could you enlighten us firstly on the opinions that people have regarding Bitcoin in particular, and secondly, your proposal to use it as a standard of currency moving forward and why it chimes with our Islamic sense? Well, I guess the first thing to mention is that the ulama have got many things wrong in the past. And there are many new technologies that were invented that some of them moved to ban without really thinking through the, the potential harm that they were causing by banning those new technologies. And examples of those are taps, faucets for water, whether it was permissible to use them for wudu. Uh, another example, which is hotly contested, by the way, is the printing press. So many Muslims will say, no, 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 the scholars didn't ban that. It was banned at some point by the rulers, but there was some, there is some evidence to show that the scholars supported that in certain cases. The uh, telegraph, televisions, loudspeakers, and now cryptocurrencies. What I am finding about the fatawa in relation to cryptocurrencies is that many of those that forbid uh, trading or investing in or exchanging cryptocurrencies make fundamental errors in their understanding of either the cryptocurrency itself or the global financial and monetary system. And many of these fatawa are issued by scholars who might have a great social media standing, they might have a huge following, 
They might be hugely respected in their fields, but they are not necessarily experts in this particular matter. Uh, and nor have they consulted extensively with individuals who are experts in this particular matter. And personally, I have come to the conclusion that Bitcoin, and I'm not talking about crypto in general, I'm only talking about Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is the most Sharia compliant form of money ever invented. That's my position. So let me talk about that a little bit. And you mentioned um, the gold standard. Well, let's take a little bit of a step back. Um, I remember that I was in a, a, a lecture, I was delivering a lecture in 2017 and somebody in the audience asked me, what do you think about Bitcoin? And I had no idea what it was. So I went away and I researched it, but I'd heard of it, but I, I wasn't sure what it was about. And it struck me that it had characteristics that made it potentially superior to gold as a store of value and even perhaps as a medium of exchange, which is why I now believe that it's better than gold. So let's, let's look at periods of human history when gold was a global standard. The Islamic Golden Age is a perfect example. We had 700 years of a Golden Age defined by a single currency that was globally used. Whenever we have seen ages of man in which gold was a, a global reserve currency, trade has been borderless and fluid. Uh, we've had minimal tariffs and restrictions. There's periods of political and economic stability. Uh, there is scientific and creative progress because mankind has room to entertain higher pursuits. And we end up, because of the nature of gold, because it's a sound money with uh, chemical durability, it's robust, it's fungible, divisible, it's decentralized, it has a high stock to flow ratio. In other words, there's a lot of it in the ground, but there's a very little flow over time, so it's extracted at about 1% per annum. All of these characteristics give it a sound um what we make make it what we call a sound money and sound money always results in low time preference a state of mind a human state of mind which leads to deferred gratification investing in our future which is something that's very islamic we believe in sabr in patience we discipline our nafs our ego we train ourselves during ramadan we believe that our physical our mental uh, health is important to us uh, our spiritual health and when we create time for ourselves, we have time and space for higher pursuits. Now, of course, you know, human beings are very high time preference. We borrow a lot. We have massive personal debt. Households have, you know, two jobs minimum. We live to service our debt. And this is because financial institutions are incentivized to lend as much cheap money as possible. So the characteristics of sound money encourage deferred gratification. And I believe that a sound money has to um, uh, incentivize this behavior and gold did that once upon a time and gold was a traditional money of Islam hence why many scholars refer to it and say you know only gold can be the money of Islam well actually there's nowhere in uh, in fiqh nowhere in sharia that tells us that only gold can be money money can actually be anything that we want it to be if the custom of the land you know deems it so but it should have certain characteristics which I've just described and therefore, there's no reason why Bitcoin cannot also be a form of money. And sure, today it's not used widely. Of course not. We are little over a decade into a very long project. Um, and, and therefore, you know, it hasn't quite established that status as a medium of exchange. But it's certainly establishing a status as a store of value. That I'm absolutely positive about. I know many people, including myself, who use it as a store of value. 
So it certainly fulfills one condition of being a currency, of being a type of money. Uh, and therefore, I, I am personally convinced that it has all of the characteristics and attributes to be deemed a Sharia compliant form of money. And it incentivizes a lot of activities in human nature that leads to a more just, more fair, more equal society. Okay, so let me try and present um, a couple of counter narratives to, to that point of view, Harris. Firstly, it's a question of when we look at um, things that are used as a standard, such as the biometallic gold standard, or even Bitcoin, which is a scarce commodity as well, and which can only be mined in certain quantities over time. The, the argument often used is that, and I think this is from traditional Keynesian principles, is that when money supply is needed in an economy, for example, in times of pandemic that we've recently been through, in times of war, in times of uh, other natural calamities that where you need to generate demand in order to make an economy sustain itself, that suddenly that scarce supply becomes a massive disadvantage and that it restricts the economy in terms of the way it functions. Um, and then also is the control of the supply, really, because who controls this supply? Um, we know that in terms of gold, it, is it a matter of people or a government, you know, trying to get as much supply as possible and keep it in their coffers in Fort Knox or what have you, um, or in Bitcoin, the same in, in your wallets. And then this issue of supply brings us on to another aspect, which is about who controls these exchanges, especially for Bitcoin. So we can see increased regulation of this, uh, of this instrument now, which is in place. Uh, with either the central banks who are trying to issue their own form of virtual currency, uh, CBDCs, or with even government regulators who are increasingly putting pressure on these exchanges to behave, as they say, and free itself from other nefarious uses. Um, so how do we then look at the, your proposal in the light of these, essentially these two arguments? So let's first of all deal with money supply. Um, and this is, this is a common criticism of Bitcoin uh, and indeed gold, that when there is a crisis, you can't print more of it. More of it. Um, actually, I would contend that one would have much less susceptibility to financial crises and boom-bust cycles if one has a sound money. The less sound money, the more susceptible the economy is to boom-bust cycles. So. The fact that we say, oh, well, if you have an infinitely printable money supply, that means you can deal with boom bust. Well, why do you have the boom bust in the first place? And I always believe in solving the, the disease of curing, of, of preventing the disease in the first place. And I believe that's what sound money does. So that would be my counter argument that traditionally gold did not lead to these sorts of vicious economic swings. Uh, and I believe that a return to a sound money system would do the same. We can't do that with gold anymore because gold, of course, was expropriated in 1933 by Roosevelt uh, and is, is, is manipulated and is not in control of private citizens anymore. So gold would not be able to fulfill the function of a true global reserve currency, which is sound and, uh, and decentralized. It would no longer be decentralized. So is there an alternative that is decentralized? Well, I believe Bitcoin is. And you mentioned exchanges. Um, a lot of people blame uh, Bitcoin because it can be exchanges can be hacked, it can be stolen. Uh, uh, things that happen on exchanges can be manipulated. We've seen a, a collapse in cryptocurrency 
uh, prices recently because of uh, a couple of things that have happened in the markets. And these are uh, criticisms of the exchanges themselves, but to me are not criticisms of Bitcoin. So exchanges, of course, um, uh, suffer from the, the potential that they might not be regulated. Uh, and therefore, you know, your money is at risk. There's a famous saying in the, amongst the Bitcoin community, not your keys, not your coins. If you don't hold your own private encryption keys, then you don't hold your own coins. If you have devolved that to an exchange to hold your coins on your behalf, you don't own those coins. So if they're hacked, you may lose them. And I believe in self-custody. And that's one of the beauties of Bitcoin is that you can, you can have custody of your coins yourself through what's called a cold storage wallet, which is basically like a flash drive. And it stores your private encryption keys and it allows you to access your Bitcoin, which are stored in a decentralized ledger, what they call the blockchain, a decentralized ledger that is spread throughout the world across millions of nodes. And this is the idea of decentralization, that no one party or, or no one small group of people control the currency and can manipulate it. And that, I think, is the beauty of a decentralized sound money. And that's why I think it's very essential to human progress. You also mentioned CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies. So we may have heard of this concept of central banks saying, well, this crypto thing's pretty interesting. And I want my citizens to also have access to digital currency. So what I will do is I'll create a digital version of the dollar or the pound or whatever. And this will be my central bank digital currency issued by the Bank of England, for example. Now, what does that really mean? To me, that means ultra surveillance and ultra control, because now the government has sight of literally every single transaction that I do, of my movements everywhere. And I do not like that. I don't want the government to have that much control over me. I believe in a separation of state and money. Ideologically, I believe in that. I do not believe that government should have the right to control money or to control me. Sure, there should be laws in place to prevent bad behavior. But my fear is we'll get to a situation where, you know, we'll go to the supermarket to buy whatever it is, meat, let's say, from the butcher. And we'll present our, our mobile phone to tap against the payment machine. And it says, sorry, you've already consumed a kilogram of meat this month. You can't buy anymore. I don't want to have that level of control over my life. And I don't want that level of, of surveillance. I come from a community, the Muslim community in the UK, that feels set upon, that feels ultra surveilled by the government. We've seen scandals like the Trojan, uh, Trojan horse hoax, for example. I don't want to be in a position where the government can spy on me even more. And that's the situation that many people in marginalized communities feel. In many parts of the world, uh, which are experiencing political and economic turmoil, in Lebanon, in Gaza, in El Salvador, in Afghanistan, people are turning to Bitcoin as a means of economic freedom. Uh, the Afghani people are being starved to death because the US is withholding $7 billion of their own reserves, which are stored in the US, US banks and the Fed. Now, they won't release them because they don't like their political preferences and they don't like their government. So they've decided to starve people to death. If you have control over your own money, you won't be beholden to a foreign government, especially 
if that foreign government has control of the entire world's global reserve currency. So that's what Bitcoin represents to me. It's freedom from exploitation. It's freedom from, from censorship. And I, I think that's extremely important when we talk about Bitcoin. Certainly when people ask me, should I buy Bitcoin? What I say to them is, these are the reasons why you might want to believe in Bitcoin. If you want to make money out of it, that's great. Good luck. I hope you do well. But please don't take anything I say as a recommendation to buy or trade it. I am only advocating for Bitcoin because I believe in freedom from oppression and an economic uh, reality that is aligned with my faith. That's why I believe in it on a long-term basis. And I buy and hold, and I expect to hold it until I retire. So many years in the future, I don't intend to trade it on a daily, weekly, monthly, or even yearly basis. That's the basis on which I use Bitcoin as a store of value. And I hope one day it would become a medium of exchange. As for any other cryptocurrencies, I don't touch them at all because they all fail the test of sound money as far as I'm concerned. And therefore, what I see nowadays is a lot of people trying to justify and halalify gambling, essentially. And that I'm not, I'm not interested in endorsing that. Sure, there might be some interesting technologies at play. There may well be. But as forms of money, I don't see anything other than Bitcoin as a sound form of money. So if you agree with the ideology, if you agree with the idea of a sound money, then yes, Bitcoin is a good thing to take a serious look at. But if your game is to play as a day trader, that's not for me to comment on. The essential argument that you're painting is 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 almost akin um, to a libertarian argument around Bitcoin, which is initially the reason why the project was uh, initiated in the first place, which is to be free of government interventions. And we can see it now from, uh, you know, from our Muslim hats on in, in terms of living in the West, that we don't want that control or things to be manipulated where people can pull the plug, um, as you say, on, for example, Afghan foreign reserves. However, this, this then does contend with the fact that you also propose that it should be used for the good, right, which is to alleviate poverty to remove injustice, i.e. from the global north to the global south or, you know, Western countries' dominance in terms of the financial dealings of countries like, you know, Syria or Afghanistan or Sudan or, or anything else. So how do those two then rub against each other, those two contentions rub against each other? And then what is the sense of Bitcoin and Islam? Because I think what I'm trying to address is Yes, it may be a, uh, an instrument to create more independence in terms of your currency, but then how does that equate to what we as Muslims should feel? Not just Muslims living in the West, but Muslims may be living in Muslim-majority countries, right? So that where the government then controls the currency. Yeah, it's very interesting that people uh, often ask me, well, hang on, are you libertarian or are you a socialist? What are you? And I say, I'm Muslim, right? I have a set of values that accords with my faith. And we believe in free markets, for example. We have certain leanings towards libertarianism. Um, I, I think Islam, uh, although not explicitly advocating for separation of state and money, I, I think that it, uh, it tends us towards that natural position. At the same time, we believe in protecting the weak and vulnerable in society. 
and caring and alleviating poverty. For example, we have a wealth tax as a cap. Now, if I look at Bitcoin, I see two characteristics that make it perfectly aligned to the Islamic economic model and our ideology. Number one, it's anti-riba because you can't create it by printing it. You have to mine it or earn it. And number two, it's anti-inflation. Because, of course, we've seen uh, quantitative easing in the last few years, which is a process whereby money is created, the money supply rather is increased, and it's created by a central bank's own balance sheet so that the bank reserves at the central bank, the private sector bank reserves, are increased so that the central bank can buy bonds and other financial instruments from the financial sector, thereby increasing the amount of money that banks have access to in order to circulate it within the wider economy. And in the long term, it helps to reduce interest rates. So of course, what happens is the banks end up lending more, consumers borrow more, they buy more stuff they don't need, asset prices go up, the banks have first access to that new money supply, therefore they can buy stocks and bonds and real estate and so on. Prices rise at an incredible rate. This is inflation. The people further away from the money spigot, which is ordinary people, have less of a chance to use that money when it's created. It trickles down to them in the end, and by the time it gets to them, prices are too high. So this is inflation. So we end up in a situation where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and that is because of money creation. And Bitcoin does not allow that to happen because you can't create Bitcoin from Bitcoin. Sure, in a Bitcoin world, we may see institutions that lend at interest, of course, but they can't create new Bitcoin from nothing. And that's the basis of the fractional reserve banking system. And I think it's extremely important that we have a monetary system that fights inflation and riba in such a way. And that's why I think it's, it's almost perfectly aligned with the Islamic economic model. Haris, um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about a lot of these things. And I'm sure we could go on for uh, another hour if we were allowed to. And thank you very much for having me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm almost concerned that if you have me back, I have nothing left to say. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.